The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And again, it's really nice to be with everybody tonight. Week two of our seven-week course, Buddhist Studies course, from Common Ground Meditation Center, of course, on the Noble Eightfold Path, as it's described in the early Buddhist tradition. These eight spokes, right view. Remember the word right or sama just means the full or the what is in alignment with the truth, the complete, authentic view, intention, right? There are eight of these. So the wisdom category is view and intention the sila, moral, area of morality has to do with right or complete, wise action, speech, and livelihood. Those are the next three. And then the last three have to do with samadhi, the kind of unification, the coming together or stability of the heart. And that involves wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. So tonight we're talking about, last week, um, I mostly spoke about this initial wise view, the first limb of this Eightfold Path, and about wisdom, the wisdom part. And I talked about it in the basic, like the basic initial foundational expression of wisdom is we human beings realize that this moment really matters and how my heart is connecting and relating and showing up in the moment really matters. Because how the heart's relating, in a sense, in a very real sense, lays something down, leaves an impression. So that who I am in the next moment is in part what was laid down in the previous moments. Who we are right now, how we're living, how we're perceiving, how we're relating, is really the expression of all of those previous impressions that have been laid down. And this is the so-called mind stream, heart stream, right? And it's just the cumulative impressions of previous moments of mind, previous heart moments, where there was the sensitive heart, the knowing heart, meeting the whatever they experience was in that previous moment, including how the mind was understanding and relating. And so that that impact, that impression of how the mind is relating, the impression, the little impact, we call the karmic impact. So when we talk about karma, we're talking about actions, like even the action of a thought or the action of me saying something, or the action of me doing something in the world, some deed, some activity, right? It's the the um, part of the mind that is motivated, intending to think, to speak, to do. It's that the quality of that intention that affects, leaves an impression on the heart. So I just want to review... Um, kind of the way 
that we're going to be talking about the path, this Noble Eightfold Path, as it's called. Remember, noble, I know it's kind of a funny word. Um, we think about it in terms of aristocrats and monarchs and things like that. But noble really means um, what would be the most useful purpose for this life, for human existence. And living in a way that alleviates the suffering in this heart and contributes to the alleviation of suffering for others. Living a life that's truly a gift toward oneself and others, right? That would be a noble life. And uh, getting on that path, that noble path, starts with it matters. And part of this is just recognizing that our mind, our heart, the habit energies in our mind and heart can be our worst enemy. More destructive than anybody out there can be our own inclinations. And the habits of our mind can be our best friend. And so that's why, you know, from this initial point of view, we often say, and I remember Ajahn Sumedho makes this point a lot. He's a Western Buddhist monk, one of the respected elders in our greater early Buddhist tradition, here in the West especially. Um, Ajahn Sumedho uh, used to say a lot that we're not here to follow the mind, follow the habits of the mind, you know, which is that kind of new agey statement we hear, and there's some truth to it, like, no, just let things be, be okay with the way it is. Well, if I've got a lot of hateful habits of mind, if I am have a lot of habit energy about being disconnected and thinking it's not my responsibility, well, I'm not so sure I want to follow those tendencies in my mind. Instead, he says, we're here to train the mind. But the training isn't so much being hateful about our negative habits. It's about noticing when there are negative habits there, doing what they do, Notice what that sets in motion. Let it break our heart open. Oh yeah, this is not helpful. And when wholesome, when we aim the mind, when we are interested in a better way, like what might be a more wholesome way to relate to this moment, to show up, and we uncover a more wholesome way, then we want to notice that. Notice how healing it is. Notice how it leads onward toward a greater sense of ease and and uh, relaxation in the heart, in the mind, in the, in the body, and even around us. The calm, the ease, self-compassion we feel turns out to be an invitation and a gift for those around us. Just like being hateful turns out to be a problem for those around us too. We can't help but, you know, in this interdependent way, where we all belong to each other, like it or not, it really matters how we're showing up, not just to ourselves. So we're here to train the, the heart. And one of the first ways we hear about this, you know, the whole vibe of the Buddha's teachings is this vibe of renunciation. And this is, you know, gets some pushback in our heart, like, I'm not so sure I want to renounce. But remember, the Buddha's just talking about renouncing, letting go, of the causes of suffering. I think most of us would be in favor of letting go of what actually, authentically, 
causes this heart and other hearts to hurt. So we're learning how to renounce to let go of planting seeds of suffering and we're learning how instead to plant seeds of happiness and release and deeper healing. So that doesn't that shouldn't really scare us in any way. We're not rejecting, you know, renunciation isn't about rejecting the world or rejecting responsibilities. We're just rejecting planting seeds of suffering. So, you know, to kind of give it a more practical um, example, you know, a kind of superficial example, but ice cream, which is something that I like the flavor of. And uh, so this this sort of general um, orientation around renunciation, the Buddha isn't saying you should renounce ice cream or whatever you can just substitute in, whatever you like, as much as we need to renounce when we see what the cause of suffering is, that my mind is dependent on having ice cream and I suffer when I don't have the flavor, don't have the quality of ice cream I've learned to have grown accustomed to, and then I suffer. And when I do have ice cream that I like and grown accustomed to, then I expect it to make me happy. And when it when that happiness doesn't last as long as I really want it to last, then I feel a little or a lot betrayed by it. And I think, well, maybe I need a second helping. Maybe that will do it. And then when that doesn't really do it, then I feel definitely betrayed by it, and I got a stomachache. Oh, here I went again, you know, and it didn't deliver. I mean, it was good for a while. So what we're renouncing in this simple example of somebody who likes this particular sense experience of eating ice cream is the mind's delusion about thinking that that sense experience, that pleasant sense experience, is more than what it is. That has to be abandoned. Ice cream is ice cream. The sweetness, the coolness, the smoothness, and all the other aspects of that sense experience. It's just what it is when one knows it moment by moment. It's not more and it's not less. So the root of suffering isn't whether we eat or don't eat ice cream. It, it's all about how the mind relates to it. The quality of motivation and tension when I'm either eating the ice cream or avoiding the ice cream. Because, of course, someone create, can create just as much suffering avoiding ice cream as they can eating ice cream, right? Because we can generate and act out unwholesome intentions, the intentions that cause the heart to get bound up and heavy in any experience whatsoever. So it doesn't, it ends up, the root of suffering ends up not having much to do with the particulars of the experience as much as it has to do with the way the mind is relating. And this is why intention is such a important has such an important place in the Buddhist teachings. So I want to share, and I'm going to send this discourse from the Buddha out. It's a pretty famous one. The Middle Link Discourse is number 61. I'm here, Atanasaro Bhikkhu, 
translates the title as Instructions to Rahula at Mango Stone. So Rahula was the Buddha's son, and in the tradition it's thought that Rahula was only seven years old when the Buddha gave this teaching to his son. And just a little background, so the Buddha, um, you know, this is probably mostly myth, but we don't really know. And so take it as a story, which means we're responsible for making the story useful for us, as opposed to thinking it's some literal truth that we just hold at that on that level. But anyway, the Buddha left his partner and son soon after Rahula was born, went off, started practicing, after six years had some profound insights and became a, a really successful, I guess, teacher in that part of India 2,600 years ago. And he just wandered around and eventually with a larger and larger group of students, women, men, lay people, but in the early years, relatively small evidently. And after a couple years or so, he cycled back through the area where he had lived as a younger person. And there, of course, was or his relatives, including his son. And his uh, son, um, his, uh, his partner, his wife, said, uh, go to that man and collect your inheritance. And so the little boy, Rahula, did that. And the Buddha said, okay, you're going to be a novice monk. And so he left with the Buddha after the Buddha had wandered through that area and continued practicing as a novice until he became an adult and then a, a monk. But anyway, when uh, Rahula was just seven, the Buddha gave him this teaching. And it's, I think, really potent because it really talks about developing this conscience, this sensitivity to what's helpful and not helpful, not only for ourselves, but for the wider world, right? And so this is how this teaching goes. I'll just sort of talk us through it, but you can read it all the way through because uh, if you're on the email list, you'll get this copy of this sutta, this discourse tonight. So they were practicing um, near Rajagaha, a town, a city, small city, uh, where a lot of the stories of the Buddha took place, a place called the Bamboo Grove at the squirrel's feeding ground. And later in the day, the Buddha went to see Rahula, and as was the custom, where the junior people would wash the feet of the senior people, having, you know, especially the Buddha had walked to him barefoot, and he'd wash his feet, they'd sit down, and then Rahula was ready for a teaching, and uh, with the water dipper and the, the, the pitcher of water, the Buddha poured out some of the water, and he said to Rahula, the little boy, you notice how much water is missing? And Rahula said, yeah, I see it. And the Buddha said, just so. Somebody who is willing to tell a lie, right? they're going to be missing something. And he just kept, and then he threw whatever remained in the little dipper away. You see how the dipper is empty? Just so. The heart, the capacity to be a real spiritual seeker is empty like this dipper if they're willing to rationalize telling a lie. He turned the dipper all the way over. He had Rahula really contemplate this sort of simple image of something is really missing. And just to make this point that how we act, how we think, how we speak, 
what we do, it really matters. You can't really live this life that I'm pointing out if you can if you think that unskillful actions don't have consequences. Everything matters. It's basically the Buddha's teaching him in this really, really simplistic way. And then he goes a little later. In the same way, Rahula, when anyone feels no shame, no regret in telling a deliberate lie, there is no unskillful thing, I tell you, that they cannot do. Thus, Rahula, you should train yourself. I will not tell a deliberate lie, even in jest. Well, that sort of hits home, you know, because a lot of us, myself included, you know, we've been, I've been conditioned, I'm in the habit of using sarcasm and joking around and this little teaching always comes to mind. I, I haven't overcome all those habits, but when I'm sensitive, when I'm reflective, when I'm mindful, it doesn't feel quite right, even in jest, to be joking around. Because in especially these times where truth is really, or mistruths are really used as a kind of weapon and a way to act out greed and hate, we, it's just such a, a powerful thing to be around somebody who's deeply respectful and really full of care in how they speak and the kind of words and what they say and what they don't say. And it isn't about being passive, right? Because those people who are full of care and how they speak, when they do speak up, their words have a real power because people know this person is careful. They wouldn't be saying that if they didn't have a lot of confidence that these words are true. And the Buddha didn't stop there. Um, he says, what do you think, Rahula? What is a mirror for? And the little boy responded, for reflection, sir. In the same way, Rahula, bodily actions, verbal actions, mental actions are to be done with repeated reflection. And then he went in this very systematic way, you know, as, as sort of the custom, so that it's really clear what the Buddha is saying. And this is this, um, this sensitivity to how we're relating and what we're setting in motion, to karma, or to the potency of intention. So basically the Buddha says, whenever you want to do a bodily action, whenever you're doing a bodily action, whenever you just finish doing a bodily action, so before, during, and after every action of the body, every action of speech, and every action of thought. So for both, all three of those ways of acting, some bodily deed, some speaking deed, some internal thinking deed, before we think, while we're thinking, after we think, the Buddha suggests that we should be reflecting like a mirror. We should be mindfully aware and in particular, mindfully aware, in, in this sort of intuitive sense, what kind of impression is being left in my heart? When I'm think, about to think something, I am thinking something, I just thought something. I'm about to say something, I am saying something, I just said something. I'm about to do something, I am doing something, 
I just did something. What impression? Is it planting seeds, causing suffering for me and for others, for both, or not? And if it is setting emotion suffering, then we should, as the Buddha says here, if it would be an unskillful bodily, verbal, mental action with painful consequences, painful results, then that is unfit for you to do. But if upon reflection you see that it isn't, doesn't cause anybody, you or another, harm, then it's skillful and has pleasant results, like in the direction of release of an inner happiness, maybe outer happiness too. And that's fit for you to do. Or if you've already done it, it should be the cause for a, sort of a, a beautiful feeling like we have when we've been reflective and realized what we just thought or what we just said or what we just did was wholesome. Oh yeah, that, that feels, whatever got laid down, that feels good. So in this sense, you know, what the Buddha is saying is we want more than anything really, we want to be a student of our own heart and what's getting laid down or what's been laid down. We want to read it we want to sense it. We really want it to be our guardian, our teacher. Because it, it isn't that someone else can tell us whether we're being skillful or not. We can fool other people. They might think we're the best thing in the world, you know, so skillful, so kind, so wise, so generous. But inside, it may not feel that way. Because the heart knows. We can't, when we're when we've cultivated this sensitivity to these karmic impressions, what's getting laid down, and I'm not talking about anything mysterious, it's just the feeling tone, the quality of the heart before, during, and after any moment's experience, verbal, mental, or just bodily action. Oh yeah, this is what's left over. Or this is what is arising as I even contemplate thinking this, saying this, doing this. Ah. So, kind of makes you wish when we were seven years old, a wise person had given us a powerful teaching like that. And we have a little bit of time before we break into small groups. And uh, yeah, I just want to like... You know, with that example of contentment and generosity and letting go, which is, you know, other ways, different ways of talking about this deep, powerful, beautiful intention of renunciation. So this is, we've got pointing out instructions. We don't just have to read our heart. We can read our heart knowing that the Buddha said, you know what beautiful intentions, like qualities of mind that are going to leave a really good impression in the heart, the quality of renunciation, which you could call contentment, generosity, non-stinginess, right? Content with the way it is. Like, instead of, like, I could be discontent with being 62, 62 years old, and then the question is, relating with discontent about my age, what does that set in motion? Or I could be, I could practice 
being content with being 62 like the function I still have in my body you know the eyesight I still have instead of the eyesight I've lost and it the the interesting it's not about um, you know we think that something like contentment is dependent on what I have why well, I, I could be content but I'd need this and that and then I'd be content but it's actually much more of a choice like what we choose to pay attention to and how we choose to keep that quality of contentedness in mind versus by habit usually keeping the quality of discontentment or stinginess or craving in mind. And the same thing with metta. You know, it says, oh yeah, it'd be easy to have a lot of loving kindness if I were around kind people and fun people. But I'm around a bunch of people I don't like. So how can I have metta? But it's much more of a choice to have to be friendly, to be kind, to be loving, no matter the kind of people we're around. Right? There's a way to be friendly, even when, like sometimes we can be friendly and say, and I don't think I can be around you right now. But I don't hate you. And I'm not going to throw you out of my heart. I'm just going to create some space between you and me because I don't feel safe around you or I can't handle you or whatever it might be. So that choice to be kind, that choice to be content, that choice to not harm, that's made for pragmatic reasons. It's not really so much, about, I mean, I know it matters, the, the sort of particular circumstances of our lives, but whatever the particular circumstances are, the pragmatic reality is, it still matters what kind of intention we're watering by paying attention to it. We always have the incentive to be drawing on living out of wholesome intentions, the kind of intentions that lead to release and to abandon the intentions, the motivations that lead to suffering for ourselves and for others because it matters. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.